Hi, and welcome to another edition of Pull Your Shelf Together with eShaver Booksellers. I'm Melissa. I'm Jessica. And at the end of this, we have a special gift for you all. I got to interview Grady Hendricks, who is the author of the Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires. And that was super fun. So we're going to have that at the end for you. Grady's going to talk a little bit about his book. I asked him a few probing questions. And then he's got some book recommendations for you guys that um, might be interesting uh, quarantine reads because we're still quarantining. Yes, we uh, are. Yes. At, at East Shavers, we are um, still going to give it a, another 10 to 14 days to see how things uh, go down and, and then we'll We'll see where we go from there. Yes, but we do have a lot of virtual events with some authors uh, that are coming up. So if you aren't a member of our newsletter, um, be sure to sign up for that. It, you can do that on our website, and that'll keep you abreast of all the virtual uh, author events we have coming up. So those have been a lot of fun. Uh, so definitely jump on that. And keep an eye on our social media because we'll post um, – about things like that and interesting events coming up. And we really appreciate it. And we also really appreciate all the love you guys have shown us um, in your online orders. Uh, we, we, we're we so grateful. Thank you. Yes, thank you very much. All right, Jessica, what's, what's up first this week? Okay, well, I'm going to talk about um, – well, first I want to say that I did finish Lily King's Writers and Lovers. Uh -huh. and, and was it as good as we thought it was going to be? It was every bit <laughs> as good, and then even more so. It was wonderful. She writes beautifully. Um, she does a wonderful job of showing you the place that the person's in, the details, the emotions. She just captures it all in a way that it, it made me feel like maybe I should never try to write a book because it could never be that good. Wow, that's... High praise. So, yes. yeah, that's going to have to move that one up in my to-be-read list. Yes. And so this week I'm going to talk about a book that I am currently reading, actually listening to, um, although I'm so caught up in it now that I probably am going to go ahead and just finish reading it because I need to know what happens next. But um, it is The Glass Hotel. It's Emily St. John Mandel's second book. Uh, she is the author of Station Eleven, and it takes place kind of all over the world. It starts out in Canada, uh, in the Vancouver and then the coastal areas, and then you follow um, two characters, and then more characters are added in, and they are all interconnected in interesting ways that you find out as you go along in the book. Um, as I said, I'm about halfway through now. There is um, the the main character, one of the main characters, Vincent, has been in a relationship with an older gentleman, and um, she has been living in what she calls the land of money. Um, and it turns out that everything around her probably wasn't as it seemed, and so she's going through some very big changes. Um, we also hear from her brother, who you sort of hear his point of view from um, talks with his counselors in rehab. So it's it goes back and forth in time. It um, Each person's story kind of goes on for a while, and then you see the interconnectedness with the other person. 
and then you hear their story. And so it, it moves around from character to character, but it all comes together beautifully and um, gives you just enough that you're satisfied that you don't feel that you need to jump ahead to find out what happens to the person next. So this is in no way connected to Station Eleven? No, completely different okay. from Station Eleven. Um, completely different from Station Eleven. I didn't know what to expect when I picked it up. It had gotten good reviews, and um, and I liked Station Eleven, but this is a completely different book, and I, um, I may like it even a little bit more. Okay. Well, so this week for me in reading, it was I, I had a sort of a, a different week. Um, normally, I'm always in the middle of a novel, um, but I finished up everything I was reading, so I read a few quick things this week. So I finally read 84 Charing Cross Road, which so we had talked about good. on here. And yes, it is charming and enchanting. It is all the things that that you want it to be. Um, and it's a very, very quick read because it's well, just a series of, of letters. It is, but it is, I think it really is a very good pandemic read and I'm really surprised it's not on more people's list. Yeah, so I, I thoroughly enjoyed that. Um, I also read the book for the Graphic Novel Book Club, which mm -hmm. is um, The Goon, Return to Lonely Street by Eric Powell. And um, this is him restarting his series, The Goon, and it was for the 20th anniversary of the original publication of mm -hmm. the first volume of The Goon. He started up um, The Goon again, and that was a lot of fun. I had never read any of the past Goon material, and now I'm going to go back and read. Like, um, my husband has these collected volumes of it. Mm -hmm. It's like The Goon Library, <laughs> and they're five huge hardcover volumes of co collected comics. So that's going to take me a little while, but I'm, I'm excited about that. And so the 20th anniversary, so it was originally published in... 2000. 2000 yeah oh boy that that makes me feel old <laughs> well yeah <laughs> me too um but it's fun because they're all kind of set it makes you think it's set almost sort of great depression sort of era mm -hmm. um and it's like great depression um and universal monsters mashup kind of thing there's <laughs> vampires there's zombies there's uh, mummies. There's all the the fun all the stuff. stuff. Yeah, it's yeah. just it's just a lot of fun. Um, but the first book that I really want to talk about, um, <laughs> I read it this morning, and <laughs> oh my god, I loved it. Um, so it is a middle grade um, novel, and it's by Aaron Reynolds. And Aaron Reynolds is, I think, best known for being a picture book author because mm -hmm. he wrote Creepy Pair of Underwear, and he won the Caldecott for Creepy Carrots as well. Yeah, um, both. I can't recommend those enough. Yeah, They're both excellent. excellent. Yeah. Yes. Um, so he has sort of a irreverent sense of humor, which quirky. I appreciate. Yes, quirky. quirky. Um, so this is the first in what's going to be a middle grade series, which I'm very excited that he's continuing it. Um, it's called The Incredibly Dead Pets of Rex Dexter. Um, so Rex is... Um, he Okay, so Rex really, really wants a dog. And he wants a chocolate lab specifically. He he knows exactly the dog he wants. But his parents think that he's maybe not responsible enough to to have a dog. He's had some questionable pet experiences in the past. There was a unfortunate goldfish incident, <laughs> which you hear all about in the book, which is it's hilarious. Um, but his parents decide to test his responsibility <laughs> by giving him a chicken as a pet. 
and he's not quite sure what to make of this. He he's not wanted a chicken, and he doesn't know what to do with this chicken. I don't know why every young boy wants a chicken? As <laughs> it's a pet, true. Don't they? they they dream of running through the fields with their chicken <laughs> by their side. Um, and there's lots of movies and books about boys and their chicken. It's true. <laughs> um, it's kind of a trope. Really. It really is. Um, so he and his chicken and his trusty best friend Darvish, who he calls his sidekick, and Darvish is not. Um, thrilled with that Mm -hmm. but they are out about town and rex comes upon the grim reaper um which if you've seen the movie big is um very similar to the zoltar machine um so he decides to see if he can uh beat the grim reaper (laughs) he does not and he ends up cursed and his curse is that he can talk to dead animals and also, his chicken meets an unfortunate end um, on this uh, outing. There's a, a rogue steamroller incident. Um, so the reason, the way he determines what his curse is is his his trusty pal Drumstick mm-hmm. comes back to him as a ghost, and um, other animals start coming to him, and he needs to help these ghosts um, with their unfinished business and to help them make their way to the light as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, this is <laughs> incredibly funny. Um, the whole time I was reading it, I really wished that I was back in elementary school and I had a teacher reading this out loud to me. This would be an amazing book to read out loud to, um, a child who may be a little below the reading level for this book. Like we've talked about mm-hmm. before, uh, reading a little up, to your children um this this would be a great one if you have a kid who's a fan of the timmy failure series which Mm -hmm. i am um these would fit right in that sort of sense of humor they're just it's so good so what grade would you recommend um Um, i would say probably 10 to 12 so like fourth grade-ish um maybe even third grade maybe if you have a kind of more advanced reader there are some there are some bigger words in here that and it it might be great for your kid to learn some new vocabulary Mm -hmm. um but yeah so why why it's a good read aloud book? yeah yeah yeah, that's why i would say it's a good read aloud book but um yeah it's just incredibly fun and the cover is fantastic oh my god yes but it's got a um uh, it drew me in immediately. It's it's got a a a very uh, perplexed looking redheaded boy and a um, a uh, deceased chicken. Um, That's a, drumstick, yeah. Mm-hmm, but a cute deceased chicken. Yeah, and front. and it is actually illustrated throughout, um, and the illustrations are super cute. So yeah, it's this is a great one. Very good. All right. Well. For something completely different. <laughs> I can't believe I haven't talked about this book before. Um, it was one of my favorites a few months ago. Um, it's Nothing to See Here by Kevin Wilson. And um, he's the author of The Family Fang. It is a very fun book. Um, I really enjoyed it. It's very diverting. But it also is um, has some deeper themes running through it. So the the main character, the narrator, is a girl who's not having a great time at life. She had some unfortunate incidents in a very fancy high school that she got a scholarship to, boarding school. Um, she ended up uh, having to leave, and I don't want to give away too much. And um, 
and her life. She's kind of living with her mom, going to community college, working as a cashier. Um, she's not happy. Her best friend from this incident is uh, went on to go to college and graduate school and has become a sort of uh, the person who runs campaigns and works in D.C. and has married a um, governor from the South and now is living um, her perfect sort of dream life. They have a little boy. and um, But the two of them have kept in touch. And one day she gets a phone call from her friend. Um, well, she gets a letter and then a phone call saying, I want you to come. I've got a job for you. And so she's curious and doesn't have much of a life going on, so she goes to see what it is. And it turns out it's taking care of two children um, that are the governors by an earlier marriage. And the first wife has uh, passed away. And these kids are living with their grandparents, and they have an extremely unusual condition. They catch on fire. They don't hurt themselves when they catch on fire, but they will burn down anything around them. And so... It's not a normal condition, not something you no, come across. No, and <laughs> so they kind of, in the traditional uh, people in politics way, want to keep this undercover. And um, the grandparents' idea of taking care of the kids is just to leave them in the pool 24-7, <laughs> Well, it's flame retardant. It is, it is. <laughs> So she um, agrees to take this challenge, and it turns out to really be an interesting trip. I mean, it's an interesting uh, relationship between the two friends. It's an interesting relationship between her and the children and her learning how to deal with them and kind of having to grow up in her life and realize what she wants. And then there are all kinds of relationships between the bodyguards who are around it and then the governor who's mostly absent but comes back in, um, and he is, I will say Kevin Wilson, he's a professor at Swanee, and he captures a particular kind of Southern man very well. <laughs> he calls them the mint julep boys, and I'll just leave it there. Yes. <laughs> um, so nothing to see here. Kevin Wilson, it's a fun ride, um, but it has some depth to it as well. I, I actually listened to it on Libro FM, and I'm blanking on the um, woman who read its name, but she did an amazing job with the southern accent. It felt like I could be hanging out with one of my college friends. So, so it wasn't like a, a mockery of southern accents? No, it was, it was, it was spot on. Very yeah. good. So anyway. All right. Well, um, so I also read another middle grade novel this week. Um, it was called... My Jasper June by Laurel Snyder. Um, she also has written Orphan Island. Um, so I will say this one is probably older middle grade. The um, main character in it is 13. So right on the edge of middle grade going into YA. But it's got... Um, there's no content in it that's inappropriate for middle grade readers. I just feel like... The sixth grade yeah probably fifth maybe sixth grade seventh. there's there's some there's nothing inappropriate but there is some more difficult content mm -hmm. in it um so you meet uh leah on the last day of school she lives in atlanta mm -hmm. and she is 
walking out of the school uh, with her best friend Tess and they're talking about what they're going to go and do and there's some distance between her and her best friend and she alludes to something that's changed over the last year that's made her distant from her friends. She's not going back to camp this summer like she normally does. Um, her parents are sort of sort of um, not really there. They're kind of going through the motions. They haven't really come up with anything for her to do this summer. So she's just left to herself um, to watch TV and read books. And um, so once she's kind of grown tired of sitting at home all summer, she decides to go for a walk and she's walking around and she comes upon this girl she's never seen before um, who's kind of sitting on this rock in the middle of a creek that she used to go to and has said she's not been there in the last year. Um, and this little girl's name is Jasper. And Jasper is just unlike anyone that Leah has ever met before. Um, and they have sort of a an interesting conversation. And this it's been the first time that she's ever been – she's been interested in talking to someone. She's been so lonely for the past year and has been so introverted – and you, you eventually find out why, and I'm not going to spoil that for people because it's important to the plot. Um, but she and Jasper strike up this friendship, and you learn why Jasper is out just hanging out in this creek. And, and there's a lot going on with Jasper's home life as well, um, and that's where the sort of more – difficult content comes in but it's an unlikely friendship between these two girls who find each other at the right time in their lives and um it's just um incredibly well written um it handles um topics of grief and some some more difficult things mm -hmm. for children um really well um and it's it's nice being in Savannah. It's a it takes place in Atlanta. It's a, oh, a Georgia okay. a Georgia book. Um, and uh, yeah, she actually um, is a graduate of the Iowa's Writers Workshop, um, and she teaches an MFA program. Um, and she lives in Atlanta with her family. So like she's Very a nice. she's yeah. a a Georgia author. Um, very good. Yeah, it's incredibly incredibly well done. Um, so. I'm I'm very curious now as to. Yeah, as uh, to what happens um, and why why things are are hard for both of them. Yeah, um, and I, they're explained um, really well and sympathetically, and it's just a friendship that alters both of their lives. Very good mm -hmm. for the better. I'm I'm gonna possibly. I'm just I'm not gonna say. Okay. I will say when I first started reading it, I was like, oh no. I'm getting bridged to Terabithia vibes, and I'm not sure I can handle this. <laughs> oh, no. um, but it, it's not bridged to Terabithia. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, good. Very good. Um, so I'm going to talk about a book that I read a while ago. And um, if any of you have read it out there and want to talk further about it, because I don't want to put any spoilers out there, please, you know, shoot us an email at eShaverBooks and, and we can get together and talk about this <laughs> over the phone or some, some safe way. But um, So this is Philip Pullman's. This is his most recent book. Um, it is the continuation of his Dark Materials, but it goes more in line with um, the um, 
the book he wrote, the prequel. Uh, yeah, so a, it's part of the pr- the second trilogy okay. he's doing. So there's yes. the His Dark Materials, and then there's this Book of Dust, Dust trilogy. Right. The Book of Dust. I'm sorry, my mind just blanked, and it's right in front of me, written <laughs> on the cover. But okay. So this is the second one, volume two of the Book of Dust. The first one of the Book of Dust, if you haven't read it, but you were a big fan of His Dark Materials, don't be afraid. It's really good. It's the prequel, and it tells the story of how Lyra actually gets to Jordan College. And um, I thoroughly enjoyed that. It's, I would say his dark materials are about Lyra's sort of formative years up to about age, oh gosh, 12, 13. Um, and then the Book of Dust talks about her as a baby and the backstory about her father and mother and how everything happened. And then this book picks up when she's in college, university. So it picks up after his dark materials. Yes, after his dark materials. And it's a much more grown-up book. I would say that it could be for teenagers, but it, it definitely is for adults as well. And it takes Lyra, and um, Lyra's a grown-up is uh, – there's some very difficult parts in this book. Um, if you have watched Lyra grown up and loved her as a character – and really been invested, this is a difficult book. It makes you extremely anxious, and um, it's beautifully written, quick-paced, and I'm trying very hard not to spoil anything, so I'm trying, I'm choosing my words carefully, but it has an extremely unsatisfying ending. Um, Well, conveniently, there's going to be more. Well, he (laughs) hasn't even started writing it, I don't think. Well, Mr. Pullman, Dr. Pullman, if you're out there, please. He's been in quarantine, so this is the perfect time. (laughs) Oh, I hope he continues this story soon because um, this, the conflict in this book is not resolved. It's right up to the brink and then it's not resolved and it's, um, it's disturbing and I need the next volume. (laughs) All right. Desperately need the next volume. So this is, uh, but it's a wonderful read and if you're invested in this series, please go ahead and pick it up now because it's a perfect time for something. It will take you out of your pandemic world into another interesting and slightly stressful world. Um, Philip Pullman, The Secret Commonwealth, book, uh, The Book of Dust, Volume 2. All right. Okay. And so for the last thing that I read this week, um, this is kind of an unusual one for me to pick up. Um, one, it's nonfiction, and it's not, I don't tend to gravitate to nonfiction. It's when I read it, I end up really enjoying it, but it's not what I'll just go to my bookshelf and pick up. But this one I picked up for a specific reason. Um, It's called Minor Feelings, An Asian American Reckoning by Kathy Park Hong. And the reason I picked this up is I have several friends who are Asian American and they have been experiencing some unfortunate incidents um, in, in the world right now. And I picked this up because I wanted to try and understand a little bit more about what it's like to be Asian American. And and this was written before this whole pandemic, so it doesn't touch on that. But I still think it's interesting because I think the perspective um, is kind of enlightening, especially right now. Um, so Kathy Park Hong is best known as a poet, um, but this is a book of essays Um, and so it's essays about the Asian American experience. So she is, um, Korean American. Her parents are immigrants. So she is first generation 
um, living in the United States. Um, and she talks a lot about how being Asian American um, and and that word in and of itself, because Asia is such a large and diverse part of the world that to say Asian American is just kind of crazy because Asian encompasses so many different people from so many different countries, so many different religions. Mm -hmm. It's so diverse. Um, so that's kind of a misnomer in and of itself. Well, does she talk about the people trying to guess what country you're from phenomenon, which is something oh, I witnessed personally? No. Which is truly no. not okay. Yeah, no, that's that's not okay. But she, she does not talk about that, or if she did, I don't remember her talking mm -hmm. about that. I will say this was a very quick read. The way it's written just pulls you right through it. Um, but she also talks, she calls it sort of the gaslighting of Asian Americans and their experience because they're held up as this example of like the successful immigrant as opposed to Latin American immigrants. Um, and she's like, Yes and no, because we're the most kind of economically diverse group of immigrants that there are. She's like, we do have the super successful doctors and engineers, but we also have a lot of people working in the garment industry who make no money at all. Um, and she talks about how they're ne neither white nor black, so they're, they just really don't fit in anywhere. Um, and it's also interesting because it is – a look at the creative process and creating art um, as a Korean American. Uh, she also attended the Iowa Writers Workshop. Um, and it seems to be a theme with me. Um, but um, she was saying that there and throughout her entire life, um, her teachers, her editors, her peers have always wanted her not to talk about race in her poetry, which is it's just mind-blowing to me, She's like, especially in light of the fact that when she had African-American students in classes with her, they were always encouraged to talk about race in their art, and she, no one wanted to hear about the Asian experience in I art. I find that very interesting. I've, yeah. I've, yes, I found it very interesting as well. Um, so it's just the, the essays go sort of all over the place, talking about a lot of different things. Um, she talks about um, stand-up comedy and Richard Pryor's stand-up comedy and talking about um, her education. And she talks about um, a story about another um, Asian-American artist that she uh, was very interested in um, who was actually raped and murdered in the oh. 80s in New York. And just how that affected her and it just it's it's incredibly interesting very very enlightening that it made me think about things that I've never thought about before especially given my white privilege that I fully know that I have and I'm trying to enlighten myself and and understand a little bit more but it's a it's a very timely book to read at this moment to understand a little bit more about someone else's life in yeah the world. yeah no, um, um it looks great. It I, is um, really good. I I am interested in that one. Um, I may have to put it in my stack. Uh, <laughs> there's another group of essays, Good Boy, that I want to pick up and start reading. Oh. Yeah. Well, I'm that one. I we okay. So Good Boy is my life in seven dogs. Um, it's 
Jennifer Finney Boylan, I believe is her name. Um, the book is definitely called Good Boy. Um, we saw Jennifer speak at a conference. Oh, and so good. We were all in tears. Um, if you've owned a dog, it will wreck your soul. Um, but but, but, but it, it, tears in a good way, not, yeah. in a, um, not in an old yeller way, really, but yeah. more of a, a, the appreciation of these dogs. And, and even for the dogs that she's had not as good experiences with. I mean, you know, we all have some really good dogs and then we have some dogs that maybe are a bit more challenging. Yeah. <laughs> and we love them, but they're a handful. They, yes. Yeah. They, so um, it's basically her talking about dogs throughout her life and how and, and what she's learned. Uh, yeah. And her life and what she's learned from having mm -hmm. these dogs. And yes, uh, so. yeah, I've, I've put that one to the side because these dogs don't all, uh, make the journey no, no. some of them go off to college and i'm sure they're having very good lives <laughs> which is the term we use when one of our dogs crosses the rainbow bridge is, yes yes yeah so. anyway we digress yes okay so now we're gonna turn it over to grady hendrix to talk a little bit about his new book the southern book club guide to slaying vampires which we are huge fans of. yes so enjoy it Thanks. My new book with a title that is way too long. Uh, <laughs> I always want to make sure I get it right. Like I, I yeah. start and I'm like, and then I second guess myself. <laughs> yeah. No, I know. It's like the bookish vampires guide to Southern <laughs> clubs, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. or clubbing <laughs> Southern vampires. Um, yeah. Well, it sort of hit a point where like, I think titles are really super important. And um, I, uh, but if you get past a certain number of syllables, it sounds awkward. So you need to stretch to the next batch of syllables to make it. So it's like, right. this is two syllables longer than I wanted, but it is what it is. Um, <laughs> but this book is a book that I've wanted to write for years. And it's basically, in, in some ways, it's a, a kind of spiritual sequel to my best friend's exorcism about, um, which I wrote in 2016. Um, about two girls in 10th grade in 1988 during the satanic panic in Charleston, South Carolina, who become convinced that one of them is possessed by a demon from hell. And, um, and, and people really hated the parents in that book, which made a lot of sense because the book was from a teenage point of view. And to a teenager, parents are pretty hateable. <laughs> and so, but I, I, but there's a story about the parents there that I had not told. And one of the things that I've been thinking about for a long time is my mom's been at a book club for, I think they just had their 40th anniversary last year, which is insane. Um, and I really hated my mom's book club growing up because they were just a bunch of loud moms, like my friend's moms, people who drove carpool, you know, my math tutor. Um, and they would like, drink a lot of wine. They would always get like cake that I wasn't allowed to eat. And, and they were just loud. And, and, you know, when you're like 13 or 14, you have contempt for every adult. And I was like, these women don't even have jobs. What do they do all day? They just sit around. And, and as I got older, I got to know a lot of them as sort of as people. And, um, and, and I realized that, you know, they'd been dealing with this same stuff I'm dealing with in life. And they dealt with, you know, they had kids and families and, um, and some of the things they dealt with that they hadn't talked about, or we hadn't been aware of as kids were, were, were hardcore stuff. And, 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 and their job as a parent was to take the, kind of take the bullet so your kid doesn't, you know what I mean? Like you deal with alcoholism in your family. And one of the big things with dealing with it is you keep your kids from knowing about it because 
that's what you do. And, and, and so I was really kind of like went from really disliking these women to really having a lot of admiration and respect for them. And I wanted to write a book that sort of talked about them and I mean, not them specifically, but but women of that generation, women like that, you know, women who, and I think there's a stereotype of sort of a Southern housewife, mm-hmm. um, which is sort of these empty headed blonde women who belong to a book club and drink a lot of wine and are really loud. And, and, and I get it. Uh, it's that kind of Delta Burke thing, but I also, it's really diminishing to the lives they lead. And, um, and one thing that always sort of got me was I, I sat down, I read, because I, I I read too much and do too much research to put off writing a book. And I read <laughs> a bunch of like books about housewives. And, and I'm not using woman and housewife interchangeably. I, I'm specifically talking about, because the book's set in the 90s. Um, but women who, who didn't work, who raised, or they did work, but they didn't have a nine to five job. They raised a family. Um, and a lot of these books were just had so much contempt for women who didn't have jobs or or nine to five jobs or 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 workplace office-based careers and you know there'll be books this is the real book about american housewives and (laughs) the only thing the book is about is about the limitations in these women's lives and how unsatisfied they are and how unhappy they are and i'm like that does not reflect what i see around me so i wanted to to try to do something so the book set in the same neighborhood as um uh, my best friend's exorcism. It's the neighborhood I grew up in. It's set a few years later uh, in 1993 instead of 1988. And um, the 90s are a weird decade. And it's essentially about a book club of women. And um, they they read mostly true crime, uh, which, which they sort of keep to themselves because they know it has a disreputable reputation. And a guy moves to their neighborhood and they become convinced he's either A, a serial killer or B, a vampire. Um, neither of which uh, theory earns them a lot of respect. And so it's and, and so it's sort of a book about these women doing what I've seen these women do, you know, all their lives, which is they do the dirty work that no one talks about to keep their family safe and together. Yeah. And that was a really long-winded answer to a really <laughs> yeah, that was straightforward great. question. <laughs> that was perfect. Um, so one of the things that I really enjoyed about the book when I was reading it is that you have a pretty unique take on your vampire in the book. Um, so was it difficult for you to come up with sort of a new angle on the vampire? And was it important for you to add something new to the vampire canon since vampires have existed for so many years and they've been done in so many different ways. Yeah, you know, vampires are weird, right? Because I, my publisher didn't want me to write this book because it was about middle-aged women and vampires. They're like, no, no one wants to buy that. <laughs> um, and, and, and I really, I really, it took me a while to convince them. Um, and, and I get their hesitation. I mean, vampires are pretty played out, but I really, really like taking tropes that sort of seem overly familiar and trying to like scrape all this accumulated residue back and find what that scary initial impulse is. Mm -hmm. And vampires, I feel like, are really, really American. Um, They are very, um, 
they're they're very they're very they're real individuals. They're loners. They're they're <laughs> you know that American myth of like the lone cowboy or or the traveler. You know the rambling man in jeans who's really sexy who comes blowing into town and where'd he come from? You know he has no roots. He's so attractive and then sort of he's like a lady killer and then yeah. he sort of leaves and no one knows where he's going. It's like Shane or something, you know, um, or um, Robert Kincaid in the Bridges of Madison County and. Um, <laughs> But if you sort of follow that train of logic on down, that's also Ted Bundy. That's also, you know, uh, Henry Lee Lucas, these sort of sexy, charismatic loners who um, have no roots, they have no past, and they come and they go. I mean, it's a serial killer, essentially. Yeah. And um, and I really felt that uh, th this idea of this predator who has no responsibility to anything but their own hunger, their own appetite, um, and, and no respect, no connections, no respect for other people, no connections to anyone else. It's such an American figure, you know, this, this idea that we're not, um, we're not a, you know, there's two ways of looking at the world. And I feel like one is a very, for me growing up in the, in the seventies and eighties, one was a very sort of career minded dad way of looking at the world. And one was a very sort of community minded mom way of looking at the world. And like, my dad was like, the world's dog eat dog. Everyone's in it for themselves. And you got to screw the other guy before he screws you. And I'm like, dude, that is like bleak. That is like this very <laughs> predatory, but I think it's this sort of lone Batman image of, of, of the American guy that a lot of people like, and it's really dark. And then I think I look at my mom and, you know, her, what, what had value to her was social connection and who you knew, because, you know, did she know the people to get me into the right school? You know, did she know the people to get me in, signed up for Cotillion? Did she know that guy to get me the really good pediatrician? And and knowledge had value, and you got that from other people. You know, I think as a, I think when you're raising a family, knowledge has like, you know, what book should my kid be reading? Do I need to worry that my kid is, you know, chopping off the heads of all his action figures? Um, you know, <laughs> my daughter has stopped eating. Like, what What do I do? And I think knowledge is so important when you're a parent and it has so much value and you get it from other people. I mean, yes, you can read books and all that, but honestly, I don't know anyone who, who's ever had a kid. I mean, I haven't, but anyone I know who's ever had a kid, yes, they read all the books, but what really reassures them is talking to other people who've had a kid. So yeah. it's just these two really different ways of looking at the world. And I kind of wanted to, to, you know, it's like a kid taking his action figures and like, you know, Superman's going to fight G.I. Joe and banging them together. I want to sort of bang those two worlds together. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you touched on it a little bit um, when you were talking about um, uh, talking about the book, and it has a really interesting feminist undercurrent in the book, which I mm. really appreciated. Um, was that on purpose? I, I know in listening to you talk about the book in other events, you were saying, you know, the 90s was kind of a weird time for women, because it's like at the early part of the decade, it seems like women had made some headway in in the world and then towards the later part of the decade it's like we took a few steps back um yeah so so what was that an intentional move on your part when you were writing it to make it have a feminist undertone um in a way but not really like i i really wanted to take all my characters seriously mm -hmm. and i also wanted to keep everything true like this is how it felt 
growing up there. You know, I was a I was a teenager and in university in the '90s for the beginning of it, and and I was really tied into my hometown. And this is how it felt. You know, the big tragic thing that was in the paper in Charleston because I went back and I read all the issues of the the Post and Courier, then called the News and Courier, I think, um, from 1993 when the book starts. Um, and the big thing that was like the headline every other day was Shannon Faulkner getting into the Citadel. This yeah. girl's going to do, I have never seen so many adults lose their toupees over <laughs> an 18 year old girl getting into a school. Like right. the, you would have thought that this was the end of Southern manhood, you know, like, and these days who cares? Girls go to the Citadel all the freaking time. Mm-hmm. Like it's so you can't avoid that stuff, you know? And, you know, I, I just, I think, I think it's very easy to take our mom's lives for granted. Like my mom, she got divorced when she was in her early fifties and, um, and she'd been married for about 32 years. She hadn't gone to college because her parents felt like college would be wasted on a girl. And she had no credit rating or a credit score because she'd never had a bank account in her own name. It's a 50-year-old woman who'd never had a bank account in her own name. Just, it wasn't because my dad was a bad guy. It was because, why? We, you know, like that never crossed anyone's mind. And so um, I feel like it's really easy to, to dismiss that stuff. And, and that's just not true. So I wanted to make it seem true, but that meant putting in all this stuff. And, and because it's about women, I wanted to be as true as I could to, to how I saw women leading their lives. I mean, it's a very outside in point of view. I mean, your, your podcast listeners can't see me right now and, and maybe they can tell, but I've got a very whiny nasal voice, but, but I'm a dude, like I, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm doing this from the outside in. So I, I wanted to make sure I had it right. And so I really, I really stressed over it. So yeah. I'm, I'm glad it works. No, I, I thought it came through really well. And there's one particular moment in the book where um, the main character's uh, daughter is talking to her and she's saying that dad said, I didn't need to listen to you because you're going through a phase right now. And mm. I just like that just, was a perfect encapsulation I think of the 90s and you know like being a housewife and I'm at, like I think you just like nailed that feeling perfectly in the book like oh. it, it was it, it was it was right on <laughs> oh thanks well you know it's funny like kids will find I mean I base this because I was one and this is what I did but you look for <laughs> any crack in your parents armor when you're a teenager and you go all in so a casual (laughs) comment from your one parent about the other that is weaponized within seconds oh especially if you can play the two of them against each other oh Oh, yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) you know I stopped I was I, I grew up in a very like church and Sunday school family like every Sunday and when my parents got divorced, I was like, awesome. Cause I could tell my dad, I'm going to my mom's church and my mom, I'm going to my dad's church. And then I just go hang out in the parking lot of like the bookstore <laughs> around the corner from the gas station and like, just hide. Yeah. Um, Cause I would rather be hiding in the bushes with like comic books than going to church. It was, it was, uh, it was cold. You know, I don't know what I was thinking. I, I think I really hated church. Uh, you know, it, <laughs> it's a thing. Um, so one of the things I think um, that's interesting about all of your books that I've read um, is the way that you um, interplay humor and horror together. 
Um, so how do you find a balance between those two things? And when you're writing horror, is there a, is there um, kind of a line that you're not going to cross in horror? Um, well, you know, the, the only, um, I mean, the humor and horror thing, I feel dumb saying this, but I kind of have no control over. Like, I just have to be honest about what I'm writing. And the way I see the world is the funny stuff happens right before the terrible stuff. Um, and, and I really enjoy the world. I think, you know, I think growing up in Charleston in the 90s and the 80s and all that was ridiculous. Like I saw grown adults burst into tears over getting their kid the right partner in cotillion. Like this is an 11 year old. What are they, like, this is ridiculous. Um, but it was really, really serious for them. And, um, and I want to take it that seriously, but it's hard to take it that seriously in a book without the reader being like, Oh my God, he's making fun of it. And I'm not, I'm, I'm trying to take it as seriously as they did. Um, so I saw that part, but then I also saw the horrific stuff, you know, I mean, um, it, it's, uh, you know, one minute you're having a good time and, you know, someone just said the funniest thing ever in the car and the next minute you're, you know, going hood first into a telephone pole. Like, you know, and so that's just sort of how I see the world. Um, and so it's something I can please a little bit, but not a ton. It just sort of happens. Um, but uh, you had a second part to that. What was it? Oh, is there a line that you won't cross oh. in, in, in writing horror? There is a line, and I cross it all the time, and I'm an <laughs> idiot, uh, which is that animals. Um, I wrote a book where a dog dies, and I still, not a month goes by when I don't get an email or an online comment about what a horrible person I am. And on the one hand, I get it. Like, you want people to really get upset. You kill an animal. Um, on the other hand, um, it's not real. Like it didn't, there wasn't a real dog, like, yeah. you know, um, so, so, but yeah, but that's one of those things that um, I, I did and I, I put animals in danger a few times and I feel terrible about it, mm -hmm. but I also don't kill them anymore. So they all survive. Well, Spoiler well, alert, every animal survives. <laughs> well, the, I was going to say the, um, the one scene in uh, the Southern Book Club's guide, um, my with the rats my my husband oh, yeah. was reading it after i had read it and he was like i need to put this down for a minute because i'm not sure what's going to happen i just need a minute <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, you know we were we were a really typical i mean i have three older sisters so we had tons of pets and like you know you learn a lot about life when you've got a lot of pets like true. <laughs> um and and you know it's funny we had a um Ragtag actually was a dog of ours, um, and and book Ragtag has a much book right real Ragtag was before my time, um, and and real Ragtag was I think this happened in a lot of families was one of those incidents where everyone's piled into the car to go to the beach and your dad's driving and says where's the dog and just as they back over the dog, oh. um, yeah so <laughs> so I wanted to give Ragtag a happier ending yes yes. Um. Okay, so the the last question I have for you, are you working on something new and can you talk about it? Oh yeah, I am. Um, <laughs> I've got uh two books coming out, one in 2021 and one in 2022. So, um they're both novels, they're both horror. Um 
the next one is a little more i can't they want to do a press release kind of thing so i can't say too much but it's a little more and it's it's a it's a little angrier book and it's a book that sort of contemporary it's um but the book after that is sort of a uh a, a more of a return to, to south carolina uh because i seem obsessed um <laughs> so the next one in 2021's la and it's modern day and it's sort of a punk rocky kind of angry horror novel and then the one after it is um a little more mellow although um i just uh realized that it's got to have killer dolls in it and I, I feel like that might be crossing a line because well, that's, that's some creepy stuff. <laughs> yeah. And it's weird. You know, I realized like killer dolls were like such a big motif in the eighties. Mm-hmm. And so many of us grew up in houses where we, there would be a doll collection for no good reason. Like who, right. Who yeah. are these? Like, why are they <laughs> like, you know, a friend of mine's like, Oh yeah, we always had clown dolls in our bathroom. Why did your mother that's, hate that, you? Like, that's my nightmare. Um, yeah. And, <laughs> they just sort of were like spontaneously generated and like, and, and I realized that killer dolls have really fallen out of favor. So, so killer dolls are next. Bringing it back. Yeah. Excellent. All right. So one of the things that we've been doing on this podcast is trying to give people some great book recommendations for right now, because people have a lot more time to read at the moment. Um, so what would you suggest for good social distancing reading? Like, what have you been reading? What do you, what do you like? <laughs> So, you know, one of the things that's been a big deal to me is when I was reading, um, uh, doing a lot of reading for Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires, I, you know, there's this whole genre of sort of domestic fiction, um, which gets a really, like, um, a real, gets a lot of side eye, I think, from like, you know, it's not respectable, it's trashy, and some of this stuff is amazing, um, you know, I mean, I was obsessed with Irma Bombeck as a kid. Like, I don't know why, but at nine years old, I was like, more Irma Bombeck, please, which is weird. Um, But she's sort of like the average middle of the road of this stuff. Um, But the stuff that really sings that I actually think is hilarious. um, There's a book called Diary, Diary of a Provincial Lady, which is just sort of an English housewife in 1930, written in 1930, um, and just her life. And it's basically Bridget Jones's diary set at Downton Abbey. It's so good. Um, I think the author's name is E.M. Delafield. Um, the, the queen of this kind of writing is Shirley Jackson, who wrote Haunting of Hill House and We've Always Lived in the Castle. But two of her best books are these books she wrote. They were based on columns she did, I think, for Ladies Home Journal that are about just raising kids and being a mom. And they're called Life Among the Savages and Raising Demons. And Life Among the Savages is the one to start with. And it is absolutely incredible. She is such a sharp, precise, specific writer. Like every word is so carefully chosen and placed. And when she turns that to comedy and a really, really cynical brand of comedy with her kids, like, I mean, this stuff is like, you could never make a movie out of it because she's very (laughs) much like, you kids go play with that rusty razor blade uh stay out of mom's hair but it is great raising demons by shirley jackson uh, i mean sorry life among the savages by shirley jackson or raising demons and then the other one is there's a writer named florence king who she's southern and i think she's from north carolina um she mostly wrote she got popular in the 80s um, and most of her books are set in the 60s, and they're all domestic fiction or memoir. She One was called uh, Confessions of a Failed Southern Lady, and I think they've been reissued as sort of a reader. She was out of print for a while. Mm-hmm. Her stuff is 
savage. Um, I mean, just you read it and your hair turns white. She, it is the funniest, most caustic, most, I don't give a fuck about anyone writing, just writing about being a woman in the sixties, being a Southerner in the sixties. And, um, and she was, she was gay. And so being gay, uh, being a gay female southerner in the 60s um who still wants to have the right china and the right silver patterns and you know and all this stuff at a time when you know being seen smoking in public was viewed as absolutely shocking it's (laughs) she's really phenomenal um you know it's weird most of my reading leans more towards funny than than horror Mm -hmm. um i i don't know why it's just that kind of is the way it comes out although there's a really good book coming out in July by Stephen Graham Jones called The Only Good Indians. Uh, it's a horror novel. And it's one of those things that I really loved because Steve um, grew up, uh, he's Blackfoot, and he grew up pretty, pretty like, um, pretty marginally and very, very working class in Texas. And so his books have this really, really lived in feeling for sort of this Midwestern, West Texas kind of um uh, feel. And, you know, it's all mobile homes and temporary jobs and pickup trucks and, and, you know, discount store beer. And I love that stuff. Like being from, from South Carolina, like that, that speaks to me. And (laughs) it's so well-written and gorgeous that it's just like, you can get lost in this world that you didn't know about beforehand. And, um, there's also like a shape-shifting immortal killer in it, which is, just adds to the fun. Yeah. So yeah, The Only Good Indians by Stephen Graham Jones. I actually have that one in my stack uh, to be read. So yeah, I'm, I'm yeah, looking forward to that. <laughs> yeah, it's really good. And it's one of those books that the first three or four chapters, I sort of felt like I was like that part on a roller coaster where it's cranking you up. Like it's getting used to the language. It's a little slow going. And then the the back two thirds of that book, I mean, 75% of that book, once it starts going, just is nonstop. Excellent. Well, Thank you so much for taking the time out to talk to me and I really appreciate it. And No, thank you. And I mean, this isn't something I need to say because people are listening to the eShavers podcast. Um, but I do want to say, I one thing that's really blown me away is how much people are coming together and supporting their local bookstores. Um, and so if people are listening, if I can say anything, you know, uh, to encourage you to order stuff from your local bookstore, I got nothing against Amazon. I order from Amazon. It's no problem. But everyone, Shaver, everyone is doing mail order right now and delivery and curbside drop-off. And I know that when you buy a book from an independent bookstore, it may cost four bucks more than you get it on Amazon. But I always think of those $4 as sort of like a tax I pay to have a community and to support my neighbors and people who know who I am and what I like to read. Because I grew up in a world where I had five bookstores I could go to. And none of them exist in Charleston where I'm from originally anymore. And I, it makes me sad whenever I drive by any of those old spaces. And I can't imagine losing a single bookstore right now during this pandemic. So anything you can do, please order something from your local bookstore because they're there for you right now. Well, thank you very much, Grady. I couldn't have said it better myself. Um, Thank you for your support of independent bookstores. And thank you to all the listeners for being um, avid supporters of independent bookstores. Like we said, we, we appreciate you more than we can tell you. Yes. We, um, 
we tend to get a little choked up sometimes when we think about people's kindnesses. Uh, for the first week or two of this, I had to tell people just to be mean to me. <laughs> and anytime we get a big order online, Jessica and I still go. <laughs> but so, yes, um, if you do order from us, we try to write thoughtful notes, but we're also doing a lot. And um, sometimes I worry they sound cheesy, but um, but we really mean it. We appreciate everything that everybody is doing and has done for us. All right, so if you heard anything on here that strikes your fancy, you can always order at eshaverbooks.com. And or, or from any other independent right. bookseller in the country. Just make sure it's an independent bookseller. <laughs> All right, stay well and read some more books. Yes, lots and lots of books. Bye. Take care. <laughs> Bye.